Hey, I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down the nonsense phrase and concept that is elevated horror. <laughs> Before we dive in, though, remember we release bonus content for each episode of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources. We have even used the resources that we developed for this podcast for our own film and screenwriting careers. So... <laughs> It's good stuff, suffice it to say. Uh, but without further ado, I'm turning this episode pretty much entirely over into the uh, very safe and dripping with blood hands of Christina Rea. Christina, <laughs> let's talk elevated horror. Yes, let's. So I feel like this episode is hard to organize for me because I have a lot of random opinions. Great. But it's not like, people talk about this a lot and there are people who are like super, super into the genre that have podcasts about horror movies that I'm sure have unpacked this in like various ways. That's not, you know, like there are journalists who write about horror who have done sure. that and we will include in you know and, bonus features. Yeah, it's like, hey, subscribe to the Patreon to get the real academic side of things. But I also just imagine that, you know, this is our October episode. We're recording it mm -hmm. in October. I am not a horror person. Mm -hmm. You very much are. So like, this is more of an, a jumping off point excuse for you to like nerd out about horror and, yeah. and talk about your side of things and for me to ask 101 questions. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the thing that's annoying to me about the period that we're in right now, and I want to say that for the most part, I love the period that we're in right now of horror and the way people engage with it because... I feel like it's finally getting appreciated and respected on a larger scale than has in the past. But the thing that annoys me is that 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 is coming from this assumption that the genre has changed into like a higher brow thing than what it has always been. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not the case, like not at all. <laughs> so can you define what elevated horror means? Like when, when people talk about it as a, like a distinct genre, like yeah. what are they imagining? So I saying? would say there's like two camps or two types of horror movie okay. that fits into elevated horror when people say it and they think about it. One is it's got social commentary that the sort of like Jordan Peele wave of films, his his three movies that came out and also things that he's done with Monkey Paw, his production company, that there's like subtext that's making a social statement that's commenting on particularly oppression and society and power structures. And not just him, but he kind of like kicked that off, especially with Get Out winning the Academy Award that like paved a path for people to not only look deeper into horror movies for, for messages, but for horror movies with messages to start getting funding much more explicitly. And then the other camp is like the more, I would say character study, like slower paced. They tend to be more just like dramas, but with really heightened horrific elements, whether it is actual violence on screen or maybe there's like a ambiguous supernatural element, like is it all in the character's head or is it really happening? And what does that mean in either scenario? But really like the character study camp where it is a drama, with a horror label or this like social commentary. Do you have an example of that? Yeah. So there's like a movie that just came out, Lamb. I, really anything A24 does, I feel like. Like look at any okay. A24 horror movie and that is the camp that it falls into. I was also, as you were talking, thinking this is a little bit older, but the Berberian Sound Studio one, it's from 2012. No, I haven't seen that. It's a, Oh, that's interesting. I think you would, I mean, I'm sure you would enjoy it. Uh, but it's about a sound engineer uh, for an Italian horror movie. And like the, it, it's kind of a character study, slow, slower horror. Um, yeah, about a sound engineer uh, working on a horror movie. And mm -hmm. so like, obviously like Foley and, you know, sound mixing is a big part of the horror. Mm -hmm. I don't think anything actually like happens on screen. It's very like psychological and, you know, sound based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, but anyways, I've added it to that's, my that's my one contribution <laughs> to this episode. And it's because Colin Hinckley recommended it to me when we were doing buy-in. Mm -hmm. I'll check it out. The one I was just thinking of is It Comes at Night. I think okay. generally 
the sort of elevated horror tends to focus on when people think of that they tend to think of like something that plays with the evils of humanity and isn't just like one creep doing a creepy thing but is like one creep mm -hmm. doing a creepy thing as a metaphor for sure a, a structure that exists or for toxic masculinity or the patriarchy whatever you know um mm -hmm. and yeah and so i think that's like the real distinction and and what's frustrating to me is that that's what the genre always has been and it's just that people haven't looked deeper i think that having more online discourse where people are discussing what they're watching and and seeing different interpretations like that has created more conversation around a genre that has largely been dismissed and then obviously people mm -hmm. of of marginalized identities having the ability to tell stories more means that we are seeing an increase in films in general right there's more movies being made than ever before but particularly an increase in genre films that are playing with power and power dynamics and who gets to tell their stories and, and unpacking society but that's always been the case like even and what I think is interesting is like if we talk about the way people complain about how movies are so woke now and how everything's so political when like if you look at most movies there's always been like a bad guy that was usually you know the government or someone in authority <laughs> like the things that that are really polarizing now and people that are very hot button issues were always like things that were appearing in the backdrop of high concept or or heightened stories um it's just that now we're so divided and it and it tends to be in very like identity based ways that people harp on them more and maybe it was easier to ignore them in the older movies well it's like when people complain about like rage against the machine yeah. <laughs> for being political and like people are like what machine did you think they were raging against right, right. what are you talking about or like people who are like new star trek is too you know woke and whatever and it's like did you watch the old star trek mm -hmm. the old star trek was like radical in a lot of ways exactly both in front of and behind the scenes what right and then also just like who's telling that story because when it's a person of color or a woman or a queer person or all of the above is telling that story with the exact same message as like a cishet mm -hmm. white dude before, suddenly that message is political because it's like, you're not, you're no longer siding with the person whose lens it's coming from. And so you think it's an attack on you sure. as like a person who benefits from that power structure, even if you were still a person who benefits from that power structure when it was that same story criticizing that exact same thing. Basically the same beats of the movie, my right, God. Right, But I, so I do think part of that is why people are analyzing horror movies more is because it's like, oh, this is a black protagonist and a white villain. So there's something to read into here. Whereas before it was probably a white protagonist and a white villain. And so like, the assumption mm -hmm. is there's nothing to read into there. And and yeah, and that's not the case. And so while I think, you know, I appreciate this moment that we're in and it has really, it has invited more people to the table to become fans of the genre, to watch things. I wish there was more looking back on what's been there, particularly from other filmmakers who are like, oh, now that this is like a respectable genre and it's the most bankable genre still always has been i'm gonna use it to break in and i'm gonna tell a story and it's like great like do that if that's what you want to do it is a little frustrating when they when people do that and then like abandon the genre after the fact like oh i was just using it and took up space from someone who wants to work in the genre and always has and would want to continue to but what i think is frustrating is that like they don't go watch what has already been made and they try and just like redo a thing that's already out there and has been done because they're not actually mm -hmm. fans of the genre they're capitalizing on a moment um and and that's sure. yeah like that's where i think the intersection of me appreciating where we're at and being frustrated where we're at is that makes sense so are there like for people who maybe came into horror through the elevated horror 
trend Mm -hmm. what would be like on your film list of like things that people should go back to as you know not just like proof of your thesis that like elevated horror is just horror Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we talk about it different now but also just as like these are some wonderful character study horrors or social commentary horrors from from eons past i mean there's so many but when i think about you know people i think there is an element of when you have a horror movie or show that comes out and it's like black people are the protagonists and white people are the villains and it's like oh they're just copying get out and like you can't you can't do that anymore you can only have one i do think like there is a little bit of because of the way the industry works and the way that executives work there is a little bit of being forced into a formula because of the success of get out and like the fact that it did win the academy award and so was like the elevated version of doing this thing but i think but you know jordan peele huge fan of the genre and part of why i love him in particular as a director is because it's so obvious how much he loved the genre growing up from all of the ways in which he pays respect to the movies that inspired him in all of his movies and so yeah like that's just something that i love about his work but If you're looking for older movies that have racial commentary, you know, it didn't start with Get Out. The People Under the Stairs is a movie from the 90s that deals with race relations, uh, as is Candyman, the original Candyman. The thing is that what's missing, and I also want to say Night of the Living Dead had an unintentional racial commentary just in casting, casting a black man as the main character. George Romero in particular tends to have very political messages in his work, but I don't think that that one was necessarily on the page until the casting choice was made and then it became overtly more political and he leaned into it. The caveat I was gonna make about these movies that I'm mentioning is that they do not have black directors or even writers most of the time. And so that's the thing that is- I mean, that's true when you go before <laughs> like 1980 for most things, unfortunately. Right. So that's that kind of has to be the caveat for right. a lot of stuff. Right, So, But like, so Get Out is revolutionary in that it was a black man telling a story about being black in America. But that's not to say that like racial commentary didn't exist in horror movies prior to Get Out because they did. And yes, they were coming through these white lenses, but they were undeniably saying something and trying to say something. Mm -hmm. Just like a funny little aside, when I was in college, I I think I was a junior, maybe a sophomore, but I think I was a junior. I was taking two classes at the same time. One was a horror film class, an elective, and the other was a race in media class. And at one point in both of them, I had to write a 15-page paper. And so I basically wrote the same paper for both (laughs) classes, but I like leaned in on one of them. I leaned more into like media at large, like race and media at large. And the other I leaned more into horror movies in particular, but I wrote a paper specifically on race in horror movies. And the two movies I focused on were Candyman and People Under the Stairs because they were both 90s movies that came out around the same time. I don't know if I still have that paper, but it's something that that I that I always remember. Yeah, so those are definitely worth checking out. I think things that worry you, that you're afraid of, that are troubling you, that are making life difficult, those kinds of things show up most most tangibly in genre when the society you're in is struggling and you're experiencing those most heavily. You can see that in media at at large, but I think you can always see it most explicitly in horror and sci-fi as well, Um, you know, fantasy, anything that is like playing with a world, world building and, and metaphor. And, and themes. And so some of the best horror movies came about when we were at like our worst <laughs> society. Specifically, there was a window in time where I think very, very visceral horror movies were coming out and they were very political. And that was when the Vietnam War was either happening or had happened. And we were seeing like the ramifications and sure. our, our Patreon all like put a whole bunch of and and yeah and so like reagan the movie they live which is from 1988 is excellent and like incredibly timely even now it's essentially a direct combination of ronald reagan's policies and specifically propaganda and the media and so like the 80s for instance like there was a huge prevalence of body horror at that 
that period of time and that's like no coincidence that AIDS was really becoming a thing that people were starting to understand in the late 80s into early 90s and you can see it a lot across many films but I think body horror in particular where you can on the surface see like real metaphor and theme being explored because for someone to tell a story where someone's like body is falling apart or transforming they're going to think about like what's causing that and what's under that and so and the audience is going to think about and who they really are and yeah. their identity and so like body horror that some of obviously can be very grotesque and, and hard to sit through but some of my favorite movies uh, fall into that category. I don't know if you end up watching The Thing. Did we talk about The Thing? I feel like we talked about it once, but I, I have not watched it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I, I really recommend it. And there have been like many, there are some people who are like, oh, that's a movie about AIDS and like not knowing whose blood is infected and who's, if you can trust your own body and like who's infected and going to infect you. But like, I think that's a post- it's like a hindsight reading of the movie that wasn't actually the intention of it, but it just sort of like happened to be in this window of time where those themes were maybe like prevalent for people, but it definitely was not an explicit, it wasn't a movie explicitly about HIV in the way that some people like to have a reading of it now. I would say like sure. a similar thing is the movie Alien. There's sort of like a hindsight reading of it about choice and about consent and about sexual assault and about pregnancy and having to carry a rapist baby. And like all of that is very much there for the reading. And I think there is an element of like what is in the zeitgeist that's being talked about and like Roe v. Wade and all of that, like being kind of top of mind that the writers were maybe like subconsciously pulling from but it definitely was not like they sat down and chose to write a script about sexual assault and being impregnated did you know i was just gonna say i have i have something to contribute from alien because tumblr's been all about it recently but apparently ripley was meant to be canonically a lesbian and in a relationship with the other woman on the ship or whatever who is also canonically trans no i do not know that ripley's girlfriend was canon trans and apparently they uh there were like other scenes that were ultimately cut that have them more explicitly as like a couple mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know what the other woman's name is um i'm honestly amazed that i pulled ripley out of my brain <laughs> uh, but yeah apparently R ripley's a lesbian and her girlfriend is trans Wow, I did not know And that's know like that. on screen, like there's screenshots. Yeah. Well, it's very, I imagine a lot of the stuff was cut down, but like there there are screenshots, like they're, the, the girlfriends, um, like at some point they're on the computer, I guess, mm -hmm. and you're like, they're like looking at the profiles or whatever, and it explicitly labels her as a, as a transgender woman on screen, which mm -hmm. is as surprising for that time. Totally. Not surprising that they didn't make it explicit. Right, exactly. Or that they didn't cast a trans actress. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're barely doing that nowadays. Good Lord. Sure. But that that's my contribution. I had a thing to say. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but I was just gonna say that, like, there's just so much. And that's part of why I love the genre, because it is kind of open to interpretation in a way like, whether people are the metaphor that you're seeing is exactly what they were going for that may not be the case but because it is this heightened genre that exists slightly outside of the realm of of real life or maybe like more than slightly in the case of alien or the thing but but like less so if we're talking about slashers or something there's a lot of room to read into what's being said and and you can bring your own experience to it in a way that i don't think is the case with just like a drama about someone you know grieving it's like, that is what it is, you right. know, like, and so, sure. and then not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but I don't know, the thing that frustrates me, so I was at an event a few months ago and it was like a networking event up here where I'm living now. And I was telling people, introducing myself and they ask what kind of stuff you make and, if, and I tell them. And there was this woman who was an, an older woman, probably like in her late 60s, early 70s, and I told her that I make horror movies and she was like, why? Like she couldn't understand why I would like it. She's like, why do you like that? Why? Like, what does it do for you? I don't understand. And 
it was frustrating because it's like, why do you like, why do you like romance? Why do you like, you know, sappy dramas? It's like, it's eliciting a feeling and that's what stories do. And, and I don't know, do you like crying over a really sad story? Like, why? Like, what if I sat here and was like, why do you want that? What does that do for you? It's like, obviously it's doing something. It's cathartic. And to imply, to assume that like fear isn't also a cathartic experience, like to go through fear, to Mm -hmm. create it in yourself. It's just like really strange to me that people can't grasp that, that it's it's not of value in the way that other emotions and other genres that elicit other emotions could be. Well, it also like, to speak from the romance world, like kind of, because like romance and horror kind of in their own way have very similar like, frustrations and weirdnesses Mm -hmm. and I will say like conversations I've seen a lot about like stories with more kink in them have a similar thing Mm -hmm. where it's like why do you like that like Mm -hmm. why do you like pain or domination or you know like whatever Mm -hmm. the kink happens to be and it's like why are you saying that's so weird when there is an entire culture around like you're not allowed to have sex or think about sex until you are wedded with a government contract and it's like that's that's pretty kinky too friend hey friend (laughs) that's a that's a specific thing that you like a lot um and so i like that's that's something i think about a lot in this conversation where it's like you know i might not personally understand it or or find like Mm -hmm. a thing that i get out of it but i can't deny that like people like it and my understanding is not relevant in their Mm -hmm. enjoyment of it or my respect for its existence and Mm -hmm. i i also find that a very baffling like way to talk to people is like well if i don't understand it then you have to pitch me on it and it's like no if i don't understand it and despite like seeing that it's out there i think nah, not for me that's where the conversation can end that's fine it doesn't need to go any further than that why do you personally need to be sold on other people's enjoyment for it to be valid right well i also feel like i don't know because i guess i'm um, of them I'm of two minds on violence in particular because I think that, you know, there's been all these like articles that talk about how experiencing, like watching violence helps process trauma. And then there are other articles that like are like, oh, that's like bullshit. It's like people wanting it to be true. And I feel like both things can be true. Like some violence is triggering and not cathartic and like just exploitative and explicit and grotesque for no reason and some of it is actually like really helpful and it maybe will vary from person to person and isn't completely objective but I kind of think context matters right but I do think like so there's two things on the one hand I personally do think that bringing fears to the forefront and making them tangible are ways to minimize them to give them less power I think of I think of like horror movies similar to talk therapy and talking about trauma and how like the more you talk about a thing the more you process it and the less power it has over you I feel the same about a fear and like bringing it to the screen and allowing you to tangibly process it and it has less power and and so if you're someone who has anxiety about certain things or comes from a traumatic childhood bringing those things from outside of yourself and putting it on screen, it makes sense to me that it, that it can be really helpful. And I think about like, I think about like slasher movies, which are often so dismissed as just like gore for gore's sake. And Gratuitous ha- gratu- violence. Yeah, and like they yeah. have no purpose and no point. But when you think about it, it so often is a male perpetrating violence, even if it is also against cis men it usually involves some sort of obsession with a woman or like a fixation on a specific woman or a femme person a person who isn't a cis man is the point and like in a world that is so often dismissive of violence against women and how it exists very prevalently and often not from like not from strangers stalking you on the street, but usually from within, you know, social circles, within family or whatever. But like having that explicitly portrayed and validated, like that's real. That does something for people who feel 
kind of gaslit by society. And so like it, it makes sense to me why even thinking about myself, like I was so drawn to slasher movies and trying to understand why, like I don't really know, but I know that there is like this anxiety in front of me. And as someone who did have abusive male figures in my life growing up, like there's something sort of validating about seeing that that violence does exist and like it's real and it's not just me, I don't know. And, and also just whether or not it's the intention of the filmmakers with slasher movies to be talking about toxic masculinity and, and patriarchal structures that undeniably comes out when it's like a dude who keeps getting away with with murdering people because he's like a white man which is so often the case in these slashes like I don't think that's the intention of the white male director but that's like you're not making stuff in a vacuum you're making these things in society sure. as they exist so they be, they get meaning from the backdrop that they exist under you know mm -hmm. so so yeah like but then the other point I was going to make is that I also don't I feel like it's unfair to constantly have to say that a horror movie has to have this deeper meaning and has to be like very tangibly saying something for it to have value and that like creating tension and having you know very like visual gore couldn't just be like fun like i for instance don't mm -hmm. i for instance don't really like very visceral or re very realistic gore Things that like I feel like could sure. re really happen to me or have happened to me make me uncomfortable. When I think about if someone like puts, I don't know, takes a nail gun and like puts it through your finger or something, which is like something that would maybe happen in sure. a Saw movie. Like that's something that's a feeling that I'm like, I know what that would feel like, or at least like I have enough context mm -hmm. to say that, that like that makes me so uncomfortable because I know how much it would hurt. But then like seeing very fake looking like blood and guts being like ripped out of a person has this like campy sure. element to it that kind of makes it fun and I don't really know why that is and I just don't think I should have to like justify that in a way that I feel right. like people you don't need to psychoanalyze your own taste right. to be allowed to have it yeah and I think that's like the unfair thing about horror movies is that and I think why a lot of horror fans who do love the like lower brow movies hate the right like quote unquote hate the elevated horror label <laughs> because it implies that like their fandom is only valid if they like those those movies that have this subtext and that you're if you just like something that's just fun and escapism and still playing with emotions and eliciting things inside of you that you wouldn't get elsewhere but isn't doing it with some sort of like message that that's not valuable mm -hmm. and and I think that's unfair and is and again like I think romance is a great example but it but it comes with the same issues where people dismiss it right as like only mm -hmm. women would be interested and so that makes it lesser than sure um but to me it's like the same kind of thing where it's like not every sex scene or not every cute flirty scene has to be saying something about humanity or the human condition or vulnerability or, you know, like closing yourself up. None of that has to, those, those scenes are elevated, of course, when you have those things, but not every scene has to be that. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Right. If it is just like, a fun scene for whatever reason, you know? Right. I, I think that people people got, people got overcorrected in trying to justify, like, arts funding, I think, in the sense that, like, well, arts are important to culture. And they're right. Mm -hmm. But also arts are fun yeah. and entertaining. And they are things that we engage with um, or create because we are compelled to because it's fun and engaging and sometimes it's fine if art is just a thing that you enjoy for a little while mm -hmm. like it doesn't have to be that deep it can be and it's wonderful that it is and we know and have talked at length on this podcast about like the ramifications of art and like its effect on culture and identity and all of these sorts of things but sometimes it's just fucking fun and that's exactly as valid as all of the other stuff right yeah. I guess to just talk about a few other movies. Yeah, please. <laughs> so one, have you ever seen Ginger Snaps? 
Mm -mm. I feel like you would really like that. Uh, you should watch it. I'm gonna be on a panel at the end of this month with the writer of it, which is fun. It's basically, a, it's a werewolf. It's like a high school movie, but it's a werewolf movie about puberty. It's like really what the metaphor is about being, specifically being a girl going through puberty. And it's okay. just, it's really fun. It's, it's kind of campy. And yeah, like, like I said earlier, body horror or like transformation horror. Some of my favorites because I think you can just that's where there is metaphor most so whether it is like puberty or your body is dealing with like disease or pregnancy or maybe feeling disconnected from your body post-trauma or having body dysmorphia body horror is always a great way to explore those things those those feelings and make them visceral on the surface and Ginger Snaps is one that comes to mind that I think that you specifically would actually like because it's more fun than actually creepy or disgusting cool. it's yeah i i definitely have a hard time with like and and i i, I don't mind the like the very fake looking stuff like that mm -hmm. similar to you it sounds like like that doesn't bother me but it definitely the more like visceral body horror stuff sometimes does get to me yeah that yeah i don't love it don't love it makes me physically ill <laughs> i get it yeah and and that's valid. I think like the thing is people when they think that's all that horror is, that's sure. what's frustrating. Like a movie, as an example, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like the go-to historically, like for many decades. I would say now people now, now would probably cite like the Saw movies more as like torture porn. But prior sure. to that, for decades, it was like, why would anyone like that movie? It's just like people being tortured for nothing. It's not saying anything. It's not doing anything. It's gross and you're gross for liking it. Meanwhile, that movie is like actually incredibly deep and actually not that gory. Like a lot of the actual gore happens off screen. And really it's like mm. a dude with a chainsaw chasing people and they're screaming through the woods. Like that's really the majority of the movie. It's not so much the actual physical violence that you're seeing. Um, but it is one of those movies that like is very effective at implying what you're seeing. And so your brain is like filling it in and being grossed out, which is, you know, which is also what's like, I think cool about horror and the ways that we can use sound um, and, and tension and like pacing and editing to make you see things that you're not actually seeing. But to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre for a bit, so there's like two things happening in that movie. One of them is this commentary on the ways that working class people were put out of work through the sort of industrialization of certain industries. And in this, this particular movie, it's about a family that worked in slaughterhouses and were very hands-on and have been put out of work because now there's like an assembly line where a machine is essentially has taken their jobs and this is a movie from the 70s uh and and so because they're instead of starving because they can't afford to buy meat or to even have like raise their own livestock they hunt and eat people <laughs> and like i think most people are like yeah. it's a movie about cannibalism and that's it like there's nothing being said there but it's like there is something being said because of the context that the the writer and director have chosen to to give to this family for their like motivation for why they're doing it um mm -hmm. and then the other piece of it is that the director has ex explicitly stated that it is a film about meat and about like where is the line between humans and other sentient, sentient beings. And he very much wanted to make people feel like they were animals in a slaughterhouse and to see themselves in the animals in a slaughterhouse. And he himself stopped eating meat because of like this specific message that he decided to put into the story. And Guillermo del Toro is, is known for going vegetarian for like a window of time after watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that was effective. It made him think about his own meat consumption and that like this screaming woman, how different is she from like a screaming, crying cow being dragged across the room? Not to say, like I think that there's, I'm a vegan, I don't expect anyone else to be, nor am I like preaching that, that, that humans and 
animals are the same because I think that is a very, very dangerous line that white vegans in particular tend to walk when they try and create parallels between oppression and injustice against people of color, particularly black and indigenous people, and create this parallel with sure. animals. Like, it's not the same. It is absolutely not the same. However, <laughs> my point is that this is a movie that is looked at as having nothing to say and is saying sure. something and, like, was effective at doing so because it, it changed the way people behaved, at least for a window of time. I just find that interesting. That And, and if people people couldn't get past the plot and the mm -hmm. implied the violence, title and the marketing, I assume. Yeah, yeah. To look for a deeper message, whether or not that would make the movie worth consuming on their part is is debatable. Like, you know, I wouldn't watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the message alone. Like, you know, <laughs> and it didn't, you know, it's not a reason why I became a vegan later in life or a vegetarian when I was a kid. It's, it has like neither here nor there. But in, mm. and in fact, I don't know if I would have even seen that message specifically. I did, when I first watched it, I did see the message about this family being put out of work. And like, that was clearly a backdrop for and because especially because it takes place in like middle america and mm -hmm. yeah and the time period that it came out like i did see that i didn't necessarily see the like vegetarian thing even though i was a vegetarian when i first watched it and so yeah i just like i think that's interesting that a movie that can be so seemingly empty and easily dismissed still is trying to say something and is still trying to comment on a window of time of that that of society of like when it was made um you would not like that movie though <laughs> i do not recommend it. well and, and actually that that was the thing i was just gonna say is that like i going back to the the woman at the networking night that like was trying to get you to like justify horror to her it's like i also think to every pitch workshop I've ever taught or been a part of where there's always some usually white guy who's like, all right, how would I pitch a horror movie to my grandma? Like they think it's like a game. And I'm like, this is not a game. If your grandma <laughs> doesn't like horror movies, mm -hmm. then don't make her watch horror movies. Like, why are you wasting your time on that? And and the, the inverse of that is like, stop asking people to justify their taste to you. You can appreciate intellectually a yeah. lot of what's out there without personally enjoying it. Like so many of our conversations are one or both of us being like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm never gonna engage with that. That's not right. my thing at all. But like, right. I appreciate and respect that you like it. And like, yeah, I have a lot of friends with more, I guess, highbrow taste than me because I have canonically garbage taste in most things. Um, but who cares? Like, I'm on this earth for, you know, one one lifetime, probably until I figure out the other thing. Mm -hmm. But like, so like, why would I go through my life subjecting myself to stuff I don't like. I can appreciate that it's there. I can like love what it's done for the world. I can like appreciate what it's done for my friends and mm -hmm. I don't need to directly engage with it. it. If it's not my thing, it's not my thing. And there's no moral judgment to that. <laughs> and right. I and I would never expect you to like justify yourself to me. I, felt like, I find that so weird as a way for people to engage mm -hmm. with media. Right. Like I really I don't like the moralization of media in this specific way, I guess, like morals and media are obviously important, but like the the moralization of fandom, I find creepy and off-putting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think also when people are, like if I got that question about how do I pitch a horror movie to my grandma and she doesn't like horror movies, <laughs> I would maybe engage with that to a degree to say like, what doesn't she like about horror movies? Because maybe she does like them. She just doesn't like this subgenre of them. And that's sure. like, so it's, so I don't think that people should have to justify why they like something. But I also think that having some more curiosity about why someone is so dismissive of something could maybe open their mind to a piece of that genre, if not all of it. And so an example would be like my mom does like horror movies. She loves horror movies, but she does not like gore. So I would never be like, mom, let's go watch Saw or whatever, like Saw 13, <laughs> however many they're up to at this point. Um, 
<laughs> but like she loves ghost stories. She loves anything involving haunting. She likes psychological thrillers. She loves the genre cannot and does not like gore and so there are many movies within the genre that she would hate and would never watch and that doesn't make her any less a fan of the genre as a whole and sure i think that's like that's the thing that's a little frustrating you know when people are like oh i don't like any horror movies and then i'm like well did you like silence of the lambs did you appreciate that movie when it came out it did also won an academy award but a lot of people don't consider it a horror movie it's a thriller and it's like the same shit you know <laughs> like it's horrific horrific things is are a thriller underneath like isn't horror the the umbrella yes. well i would argue thriller? i would argue that but the people who are in the sort of elevated horror camp Historically, I think thriller has been the distinction. Like interesting, and even Jordan Peele before he like became Jordan Peele that he is now that ha can like basically make whatever he wants within the genre. Even he was like, "I'm making social thrillers." That's and that was that was like what Get Out mm. was until it was like this is a fucking horror movie, and then he was like, "Yeah, I make horror movies." But even for him to be taken seriously and for that movie to be taken seriously, it had to be a social thriller. And then, like, it won the Academy Award and he was like, okay, like, I make horror movies. This is my production company does. I would say that thriller has been, like, this side category that's been more respected. And I would argue that many movies that could be considered thrillers are just horror movies and vice versa. Like, they're, they're really, yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to say like where the line is because a serial killer, like a slasher movie is about a serial killer and so is Silence of the Lambs is a movie about a serial killer, you know? Uh, sure. Yeah. And then I'm like, I'll ask people, do you like the movie Jaws? And it's like, that movie's just a fucking like creature feature. It's just a higher brow creature mm -hmm. feature, but it's incredibly respected as cinema and like the cinematic thing that gets studied in film school mm -hmm. and but it's just like a monster movie you know like that's really what it is it's just the monster is a real creature right. rather than a supernatural one exactly but like it's kind of a slasher you know like the shark is picking people off one by one throughout the movie it's not that different and like jaws is also a good example where i think people didn't necessarily read into the message of the time like and i, I think it gets more labeled as like a drama with this element to it but it's like you know mm -hmm. the 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 shark swimming and stalking through legs in the water with the music playing is like so similar to the Halloween music that, you know, when Michael Myers is stalking through the streets looking for his next victim. Um, but anyway, what I was going to say is that Jaws, during the pandemic, the like themes of Jaws kept getting shared a ton because in the movie, the mayor refuses to close the beach because it's 4th of July weekend and he doesn't want to scare off the tourists who are going to spend a bunch of money. And it's like profit over people, even though there is a killer shark in the water. And that is like very, was very tangibly felt during the pandemic sure. by people. So it was getting shared a ton, but that message like has always been political and can be like, sure, it's one mayor in the movie, but you can apply it to our structure at large in many different right. situations. That's how metaphor works. Right, exactly. <laughs> it can't be. <laughs> it's like, how many mayors do you want before it's a political message? Like, right. what, what are we talking about here? Right. So it's just like one of those things I think that you wouldn't see it as a political movie, but to me it is a very political movie. Like, literally the people, after the first victim, no one would die if the mayor had put people's safety over profit. That was that. Of course, there's like, yeah, you know, other issues to be said about that movie that it made people like vilify a creature that's mis misunderstood and generally doesn't actually kill people, especially not like in the way that this shark does hunting people down sure. one by one, killing them. But, you know, so like it's it's a it's a flawed metaphor, but it is very much commenting on a real life issue that affects our government mm. and many governments. And so, yeah, I... To me, it's always like these things have never been mutually exclusive, the genre and the commentary. Sure. And like The Twilight Zone, I grew up watching that, loved it. Some people would say it's not horror, like it totally is, <laughs> you know. Obviously, there's no blood and guts in it because it was the late 50s, early 60s, and you couldn't put that, that stuff on TV. 
Um, but it was totally horror, definitely, yeah, some fantasy, some sci-fi, some supernatural elements, but like all to me under the umbrella of horror and was incredibly political, incredibly, incredibly political. Rod Serling was someone who struggled with PTSD before they had a, a label for that because of the war and he was very, very critical of the US government and the various ways in which the government was and continues to be oppressive and he was very much an advocate mm -hmm. for the civil rights movement and so he was very political in his in his episodes and he often had to fight to include black characters in the few episodes where there are black characters but when he wasn't allowed to do that he would do it with metaphor you know like he would use supernatural elements to make political statements about the government as it existed at that time and like yeah so it's just so strange to me when people are like, this is a new thing, when that has always been the case. Mm -hmm. And the people who are so enraged these days by how political stuff is, are often the people who loved that media. Right. It's just like they weren't seeing themselves as the oppressors because of the metaphors being used. And so now they feel defensive in a way that they didn't then. Mm -hmm. But it was always critical of what they were benefiting from, you know? Uh, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's like you can see that nowhere as clearly as like Fight Club, like the book Fight Club and even to most extents, the movie Fight Club, very explicitly like anti-patriarchy, anti-toxic masculinity, like anti-capitalism yep. and mm -hmm. all of these chuds who are like, this is my favorite book you know is that's not why. I also think, not to bring up yet another thing I saw on Tumblr recently, although at this point it's the only fucking functional, semi-functional social media website out there, uh, but I saw this really interesting clip from a Hozier interview and then some discussion under it that is very relevant to what we're talking about here, which is about like things being political. And there was this Hozier uh, interview about how like Somebody was interviewing him about, like, do you think your music is, like, overly political or whatever? And he's like, I mean, everything is political. Every piece of art is political. A children's drawing of a house mm -hmm. is political. And somebody added some commentary to this post that I thought was really, like, insightful in a way that, like, I hadn't contextualized before. But they were like, yeah, like, think about it. When a kid draws, like, a crayon drawing of a house, what are they drawing? You know, and, and does it matter if the, like, prompt was home or house? Like, are they drawing a trailer? Are they drawing a one-story house? Are they drawing a yard? Like, what does it look like when they are asked to interpret what a home looks like? Does it look the same as their home or different? All of those have political implications, and it's, it's mm -hmm. just about whether or not we engage with them. But, like, it is naive to think that anything said or created does not have, like, political um, assumptions that you can kind of put in there. And yeah. so, yeah, it is definitely irritating to have conversations with people who are like, take politics out of art. It's so whatever. And it's like, politics have always been an art explicitly, implicitly, or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's not controversial. That's just facts. Yeah. So every single decision, every piece of, every piece of every single movie is political in some way. Even the choice to try not make it political is political because it's like you're deciding what you think right. is political or not. And Right, and it comes from a place of privilege of like, it, identity is only political if your identity hasn't been politicized. Right. Like the choice to not have any people of color and to just have an all white cast is a, is yeah. a political yeah. statement yeah. <laughs> that says a lot about you and your experience and your assumption of neutrality mm -hmm. and like, it is, yeah, it's true. It just like, it's just so naive to imagine a world where like, that's not true. Existence yeah. is political. For sure. We're, yeah, so there's so many movies and and sure. our our Patreon, I'll like put a whole bunch of others in there, I'm sure. Yeah, if you, if you want a Halloween viewing list, definitely subscribe to our Patreon at the $3 level or above. And you will get probably, frankly, too many movies and i think that's the right way to go we should always have too many things to engage with it means that we will never run out cool well this has definitely been uh, educational for me and i'm excited and it looks like ginger snaps is on freebie so <laughs> if you have an amazon prime account or maybe even if you don't i actually don't know if freebie is available without amazon prime but in any case ginger snaps is on amazon uh 
with ads, I guess. So I'm curious. I've never, I've watched TV shows with ads on freebie. I have yet to watch a movie. So since this is the first time that we have recorded in like at least three months, because <laughs> we recorded our most recent episode with Liz Manischel like months ago, like truly months ago, before she even had her baby. By the time the episode came out, she had a full human baby <laughs> that was outside of her body. Um, so as a result, it's been a little bit since we have been in the booth, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. I guess a big thing to mention is, hey, the writer's strike ended with a seemingly really positive contract. Of course, concessions had to be made, but like broadly speaking, all of the leadership and the influencers who were like making content about the strike seem happy for now. And I guess, you know, it's one of those things that will remain to be seen how what the like long term effect of it is. Um, as of the recording of this episode, SAG is still in negotiations, and uh, apparently their their picket lines are flagging a little bit, uh, especially in contrast to the like robust writers ones. So if you are in especially LA or New York, definitely keep an eye on SAG social media and and try to attend. Um, anything that you are able to, because they definitely still need the solidarity if we're all going to be able to get back to work in good situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to go too far into details of like what else we've been up to, because presumably we will be talking about it in our end of year episode, our, our breaking out of breaking in finale as it were, but I started an LLC, Liz Manischel, and that conversation we had immediately after I got laid off from Seedenspark, uh, plus a series of conversations with other um, female freelancers uh, encouraged me to maybe try to make this a thing. So if you are somebody or you know somebody who is a filmmaker uh, looking for crowdfunding support or producing and like script auditing support, check me out. BrieCastellini.com slash consultations is where you can find all of my existing packages, but I am adding classes and packages all the time. So if there is something that you need from me that you want to pay me money for that I don't currently offer, please send me an email. (laughs) I I know some folks have actually already found me via this podcast. So hey, this is a statement (laughs) to say I'm trying to go full-time freelance or at least as full-time as feels relevant or possible and so if you would like my help with a number of things that i am extremely good at please get in touch cool thanks so much to kelsey rauber for our theme music kaylee brown for our podcast art and to all of you for listening links to learn more about kelsey and kaylee as always is in our episode description and thank you to brandy nicole and kelsey rauber for being our booby vips uh, our ten dollar support on patreon if you want your name on that list or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every episode you can subscribe for as little as three dollars a month on our patreon at patreon.com slash breaking out pod thanks so much everybody 